Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Tommy Gonzalez has earned the right to be called an all-star city manager. Now leading the city of El Paso, Texas, Tommy has also managed in Lubbock, Dallas, and Irving, earning awards for performance excellence along the way. His time in El Paso has seen it rise to now one of the safest and most well-run cities in the entire US, paying off debt while also growing fund balances. When I asked him how this was done, the answers were not at all what I was expecting. This story isn't about balance sheet management, chasing grant funding, or cutting services. Instead, it's about one transformative idea that can be put to use whether you're leading a billion dollar city or a local rec soccer team. That story is about the power of people, and I hope you stick around to hear what's possible when you begin treating them as drivers for change rather than just a cost center. Please enjoy my conversation with Tommy Gonzalez. In our second episode focusing on the unique state of Texas, we're heading to its westernmost city with almost 700,000 residents, El Paso. As can be gleaned from the name, it's home to a rich Hispanic heritage, and I thought that that would be a great place to start the conversation with El Paso city manager, Tommy Gonzalez. So Tommy, welcome to the show, and let me ask off the bat, from both a cultural and a governance perspective, what maybe are some of those, I guess, unique aspects, um, not only immediately bordering another country in Mexico, but, but also being a majority Hispanic city in El Paso? We have a very strong tie to, to Mexico. We see ourselves as a region. Uh, it's no different than working and living and playing in a metroplex area. We're about two and a half million when you count Juarez, you count El Paso and Las Cruces. That's about a 50 mile radius. And it, and it covers two countries and it covers three states. The state of that Juarez is a part of, the state that we're a part of, and that's Texas, and then Las Cruces, New Mexico. And then there's two countries, obviously, with uh, America and, and, and Mexico. So we find that we have a strong relationship and we, they're family and, and we treat them as such. And there's an economic tie and there's business that we do. We have people from Juarez come over and they work here. Likewise, from El Paso, they go over to the manufacturing companies, which are called maquiladoras, and they work over there. And so it's a very strong connection that we have with, with Mexico. As far as being majority Hispanic population, I think that blends in nicely to what I just said about that relationship and that because we 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 are uh, largely Hispanic, we very much are tied to our, our heritage and, and also the culture and that family is very important. So the family is a, a big priority. We work very well together, not only taking care of our families, but also taking care of our neighbors here. And it's a very welcoming community because of that. Fantastic. And obviously over the past I don't know, six, seven years, and obviously even further beyond that, the public narrative around the border and Hispanic relations has been a source of great tension. So without needing to get too political, what do you believe the US maybe as a general populace misunderstands about the country and, and even the people of Mexico? Well, I believe that, yes, you're right. There's a lot reported that, that's, that's not accurate. And I think there's a, a lot reported about immigration and the fact that, you know, that has to be addressed, you know, both sides of the aisle haven't really addressed that issue in a way that, that, that it needs to be addressed. And I think both sides have said that. So that, that is a given. Uh, however, in terms of the misconceptions, a, a lot of people, to your point, I know a lot of friends of mine from other parts of the state that I've worked in, 
will call and say, well, I'm sure it's very dangerous or it's very scary or this and the other. I said, no, it's not. We're one of the safest cities in the United States for our size. And as far as the immigration crisis that the border cities have worked with and, and dealt with, we have done it very efficiently. Uh, a lot of other border communities have come to see how we were doing it. And or frankly, the way we've done it is just, as I've said earlier about, we're, we're very family oriented and, and we, we very much work with our partners that way. And that we know we have other local partners. We know we have state partners and federal partners. And we work with them to really work through processes to make it as efficient as possible to get the people with needs into the right place and get them uh, on their way with, with what they need to do as the next step. So when yeah. we've had uh, different uh, numbers spike, uh, we've really helped them get on their way in terms of uh, processing those individuals. So it's no different than the, the work that I used to do in the military, and, and whether it was a low-intensity conflict, high-intensity conflict, you know, how you deal with situations uh, in, in emergencies and, and how you process and how you work with, with human beings. And, 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 and treat them as human beings. So, so yeah, I think the mis- biggest misconception is that we have truly a strong economic relationship with Mexico. And I think the immigration issues that have risen are, are really kind of muddying the waters in that respect. Yep. You know, I completely agree. And, and I think having spent now almost half a year down in Mexico City, it's really eye-opening how different the reality is here on the ground from, from even a security perspective than a lot of what we hear on, on media. And that's not only media from the US, but even my home country, New Zealand, and really across the Western world. And you'd brought up your background in the military, and maybe that's a good place to go next. You join a a long list of guests on the show that bring a proud military background. You kind of hinted at this, but does service, military service, specifically prepare veterans well for the demands of local government? And really, are there any similarities between operating in the two environments? Absolutely. I mean, before we were working on the immigration issues and and that became a crisis, even before we had the August 3rd uh, hate crime that happened in El Paso in 2019, and even before the pandemic uh, started two years ago, we have a lot of similarities in in local government with the military. In in local government, you you have a budget, you have to allocate resources, you have large numbers of people, you got to get them trained, you got to get them on the right page, you got to have a strong mission that they're executing every day, that they're doing on a regular basis. Values, a vision, mission, and values are very important in the military. A strong strategic plan, having you know, you managed by objectives. You know, how do you take that hill sort of thing? Leadership is indelibly worked into everything that you do in the military in terms of training. And so that is something that is a huge imprint on someone like myself. And so you take that into this kind of role and you have to do the same things. It's no different than when you go on a deployment and you have to make sure that you have an, a good ops plan, good operation plan in terms of how you deploy your troops from their homes into that deployment activity and get them to the to another country that's that's foreign to them. They have to get ready and understand that country. You've got to get them educated on that, got to get them trained on that. You have to get them all up to speed on, on shooting, on, on all the different weapons that they're going to be utilizing. So all that training has to take place before the deployment occurs. You have to get them to a certain level. So you have to get them proficient and then you deploy. When you deploy, you have to have food all along the way. You have to have the right transportation. All these different things that are very minor, very major, if you don't have any of them accomplished. You got to get them there and you got to get as many of them back safely as possible. So when you take over an organization like this, it is one billion in terms of the operations. It's another one billion in terms of the CapEx, the capital projects list. You have almost 7,000 people as an organization. It's a $2 billion operation with almost 7,000 people. That, that's a large organization. 
And so it's no different than when I was a battalion commander and you have you know hundreds of soldiers that you're in charge of. This is no different in that respect. Now, obviously, you're getting shot at in another situation here. We're not necessarily getting shot at with bullets, but you are getting shot at with words and other things like that. So you have to be prepared. You have to have the, the team uh, inspired, motivated, getting them to a, a level of proficiency and making sure that, that they're following the mission. They're, they're executing that and they have the value systems in place and they're treating each other with respect and that you're executing on that strategic plan and that you're getting things done. And you're reporting out effectively. So, yeah, I think resource allocation, training, competency, having a plan, working on on focusing on your people and and processes and systems and enabling them to get the results and then getting the results and communicating the results is very, very important. Very similar to what you have to do in the military. So I know you're a a humble individual, but I'll, I'll ask you to push pause on that for a moment because you do have an incredible record of achievement in local government that our listeners may not be aware of. Would you mind maybe sharing a postage stamp of your rise to the top working in local government and really some of those moments that you're maybe most proud of? Well, I didn't know anything about city management. And when, when I played football in high school, uh, my high school coach's wife was a city secretary in the city of Lubbock. She'd always tell me I'd make a great city manager. And I, I, I didn't know what that was, quite frankly. And uh, I got in the military later after I went to play college football and you know, hurt myself. I hurt my knee and I, and I couldn't fulfill my dream to play pro football. Got in the military. I married my wife. She kind of straightened me out too, right? Made me better. And then that same city secretary kept telling me that same thing. And so I got deployed, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I was on active duty for uh, several years. And then my wife was like, you're getting deployed all the time. You need to maybe get out of that. And, and so I got into the reserves. And then I still had that same city secretary telling me to come, come apply. So I did. I worked for the city of Lubbock, worked for the city of Harlingen worked for the, for the city of Dallas, uh, Irving, and now here. And I've held senior positions there. I was a deputy city manager in Lubbock. I, I became the interim city manager in Harlingen. I was deputy, I was a city manager, assistant city manager in the city of Dallas, and then the city manager in Irving, and now city manager here. To me, the most fulfilling thing in all of those jobs has been working with individuals and really working to inspire and motivate them and transform them. We've had people that have been transformed and have gone from a position, a low ranking position to a high ranking position. I don't know that I did that. I'm just saying that we made it possible to have those individuals reach that level of success. We, we did a lot of that in the places that I mentioned, but the most recent ones were in Irving and then now here in El Paso. We have individuals that have risen to the top that are extremely talented. And very, I'm very proud of the fact that we as a team put in enabling processes and systems that have helped support them to get to the levels that they are now. And they have been able to literally move mountains and do things that we would have never thought. Things like making a city like in Irving uh, safer, better, uh, cleaner. And by that, I mean, we became the fifth safest city in the United States in Irving. We weren't even on the map for that. And we did that through cross-functional teams which was this teaming concept where you have different disciplines, different departments, all working together as a task force, so to speak, to attack a problem. We were able to make the city cleaner uh, by being able to work on seven major priority corridors, meaning the seven most traveled streets in that city. And we totally redid that from, from, from stem to stern, I mean, all of it. And then we were able to redevelop the downtown that had never had any attention. They call it South Irving Neglect, Sin. And we were able to then turn that around. And the best compliment 
backhanded compliment that we received is whenever we had a, a citizen come to a, a city council meeting and say, we want our streets or our intersections to look as nice as this one on South Irving on Shady Grove. Gosh, we, we have arrived. If the richest part of town is saying they want to look as bad, as good rather, as what they considered the first part of town in the past. So I believe that that kind of said it all, just in that just one backhanded compliment, I guess. And then in El Paso, I talked about transforming people. We've had people that lost over 220 pounds because we put a Shape It Up program in place, which is a wellness program. Now we have this program in place that I can make up to $150 per month if I do X, Y, and Z. Person lost 220 pounds. That person was an assistant director when I started working here. Put that program in place. Now that person is a world champion weightlifter, female weightlifter in the world and in, in holds records and lost all that weight, became a director of, of animal services. We promoted her to that. We went from 23% no kill. She took it on whenever we were like at 50% when we had done all these different things. And I told her, look, this is the remaining part that we need to do. She took it to 87, 88% no kill, meaning that eight years ago, 77% of the animals that came in would be put down. Now it's in the 10, 12%, huge difference. We have an individual when I started here was a budget analyst. Now he's the chief financial officer, one of the best. I can go on and on in terms of the transformation that's taking place for our individuals here. And that's because we provided the training. We enable them to be successful by supporting them. And they just were able to let their, their light shine, right? That by doing that and seeking input from their employees and getting that input and being able to then make changes in the organization, we transformed the organization. Then that led to transforming the community. We've done almost a thousand capital projects in the last seven years. It's incredible. Whenever they weren't even being able to turn out a hundred projects, three year period. That is a lot of work that has taken place, a lot of exceptional work. And it took place because we trained our people. We developed our people. And then we, in the same same time we were doing that juxtaposition to all of that, we were also seeking input from our residents, seeking input from our employees. We were integrating things like Lean Six Sigma methodologies, which listens to the employee, listens to the people who receive the service. And we leaned out inefficiencies. We were able to also standardize deviations. And then we were able to get better service. Things like going from 12,000 potholes a year to 76,000 potholes a year in terms of you know, getting those done annually. Huge, huge difference. We used to take 21 days to do an outdoor recreational permit. Now it's 15 minutes. Can you imagine getting an outdoor rec permit and asking someone, how do I get this done? You have to talk to four people and it takes you 21 days to get that done. Now it takes you 15 minutes. That's because we weren't focused on the customer. So we were redirecting that focus. We've also been able to leverage and do big projects like almost 60 plus million dollars to do three downtown hotels. Two of them were historic. that have been redone, renovated, and now, now they're in their full glory. We built a new hotel from the ground up with, with some of that leveraging of state dollars with legislation that we introduced here that wasn't in place before. So we caused it to happen because we had a strong strategic plan. We have the tallest office building, an office building that hadn't been built in almost a century in downtown. Now it's the tallest one, tallest one. So our business community is bullish in our market and of our market in terms of being able to do that. I mean, that's significant, especially going through all the different challenges that we've gone through as a country uh, and in the last several years. So being able to do that, we transformed our downtown and it's gone through a renaissance of sorts. Several other historic structures have been redone. We talked about the relationship with Mexico. We had a very pitiful entryway 
for our southern neighbors. Now we have a lighted, what we call Paseo de las Luces, which means path of the lights. We didn't have any lights, which is kind of silly. Call it that, and we didn't have any lights. We have a decorated, lighted entry path, and we have archways on both corners. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I mean, if I send you a picture, I mean, it's, it's breathtaking. And that's, I think, an elegant way of, of really welcoming our neighbors because we have, a, as I said, a social and an economic relationship. And, and El Paso thrives. Texas thrives. The United States thrives. We need them to thrive economically and socially so that they, they are able to continue to develop and grow their country so that we're a stronger country. We're neighbors. We have to be strong. They're strong. We're strong. We're strong. They're strong. We now have water parks that we didn't have before that we received good and bad feedback about initially because of the costs. But now our people here in our community don't have to drive eight hours or get in a plane and pay for that and, and pay for hotel costs to enjoy that similar kind of environment that they now have in their own backyard. And we also have more visitors coming across from Mexico enjoying those same kind of features. Again, increasing the value that they bring by increasing our sales tax, making our budget more effective, but increasing the dollars that we bring to the table and making us more fiscally responsible. Because I say that because that was an issue eight years ago. When I started here, we had eight days of operating capital. That meant we had eight days of a savings account. Today, we're at 61. Gold standard is 90. We're, we're, we're inching closer and closer to that. That's significant. We go from nine days of operating capital to 61. That's almost $50 million that we put in the savings account. And they only had nine days of operating capital. So if we have World War III, we're out of money in nine days. And now we have that two months. And we're working to get to three months because that's, again, the gold standard in the industry. So I believe that encapsulates what I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of working with people, working to make them better, to then make organizations better, being able to then transform communities. So that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, really enjoyed that answer. And let's say when talking about that remarkable example of, of the colleague losing 220 pounds, I think it was, and transforming her office, most other folks maybe in your shoes would say that, hey, your staff's personal lives are their business and it's up to them to turn up in the best condition they can to, to do their job. And you know, there's no room in the budget to spend on superfluous benefits around health and lifestyle when roads need to be paved and police officers hired and so on and so forth. Was there a particular moment in your life that the penny dropped around investing in human beings being the most direct way to actually then go and transform the city itself? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I believe when you spend dollars on your team, you're investing in people and they need to hear that and they need to feel that. And I've always thought that if the person's happy at home, they're going to be happy at work. If the person has different things that they're going through, whether it's, whether like you mentioned, whether it's personal, whether it's from a health standpoint, which is personal, financial, that's personal as well. All these different things we all go through. When the, when the team feels and sees that when you say something, you do it, that's extremely important. So we do employee surveys. We also do employee town hall meetings. And I personally go out and, and do the town hall meetings. And I take questions. And those questions are on top of the, res- the, the employee surveys, rather, that we do. The employee service surveys, rather, are very, very good because it's across the entire city. And then when you do the employee town hall meetings, a lot of the information you receive is anecdotal. Some of it is consistent with the employee surveys that, that we do. And when you get all that information, you aggregate the data, and then you then make adjustments to the organization, and make it better by putting the processes and systems that are important to them that in order to help, help them do a, a better job. They're inspired and motivated, or they're motivated to do better work. So when you get to that point and you're more efficient and you're carrying out different things and you create then 
leaders, by training leaders, by giving them leadership training, they do a better job. So I guess with your question, it's really, to me, never a waste of money to develop people, never a waste of money to invest in people from a health standpoint as well, because they're going to be healthier, they're going to be smarter, they're going to be more proficient, and they're going to get you a better product. And they get you a better product, citizen's going to win or with a customer, wherever you work, whether it's the private or public sector, customer will get a better result. I'm personally a pretty big proponent of the 80-20 principle. So that's how I'll frame this next question. And maybe it even ties back to your previous answer. What is operational excellence to you? And if you think about your success in driving organizational success as you have so well, do you think it's possible to crystallize the majority, the 80% of your success down to just a few key factors? Or is that maybe overly simplistic? Well, I, I believe that any individual success is based on the teams they create and the imprint that they make in an organization or in a, in a community. And so that really is the gold standard, in my opinion. And when you look at, in my case, working in different communities and being able to then go back and say, these things were done because we had a strong strategic plan and we created a strong team to execute, to have that type of result, to have that type of transformation in the community and, and then to be able to show it. That's no different than being in college and saying, I can put the ball anywhere I want to. And you say, well, that's that's a little confident, isn't it? And say, well, I can do it though. And so when you create a plan, you create a team and you say, we've created a team and it's been done. And then the team then gets all these things accomplished and you help guide that, then that's confidence. But then that's also proving it up that it got done and you were able to show people and you're able to share with people how to get that done. To me, operational excellence is that. To me, the way you communicate that to people when they say, what's operational excellence? Well, compare yourself to the best and, and show that you're better than the best. We compare ourselves to other cities that are, you have really good statistics. We compare ourselves to the Baldridge winner, winners, the Malcolm Baldridge winners in the private or public sector. That, that's the best of the best. That's a presidential award that really points to performance and operational excellence. We compare ourselves to that. We want to be better than that. A good example of that is our employee survey that I keep talking about. We're best in the country and best in the world in terms of the response rate at 98%. No one's better than that. And so we say that because that's important when we get that feedback, make those adjustments. It's very compelling data, very compelling to not only share that with our employees, but then also share with the council in, in our case, which is our board, or share with the community and say, well, we've listened to our employees and these are changes we've made. And this is why we made the change. And what are you getting out of it? Getting a better result, getting better streets, getting a better downtown, you're getting a better quality of life by these, these parks that have been improved, these recreational centers that have been improved and, and new centers that you didn't have before that are multi-generational. You have these water parks you didn't have before. So that's the re- result. That's the transformation that's due to the fact that we invested in that employee, we invested in saying that we want the organization to be operationally proficient and, and to really demonstrate what operational excellence really means and, and, and by doing it. You know, it's, it's like to me, leadership is a word, right? But, but leadership to me, when you say someone's a leader, to me, it's an action. You have to take an action, whether it's saying, I want you to take an action and demonstrate actionable ways where you lead by partnering, by developing, by nurturing, by building people up and building other agencies that you work with up by working on this community of excellence that we've done here. And we've shared what we've done here with them. We've learned from them. They've learned from us. 
whether it's in Lean Six Sigma methodologies, whether it's in the Baldrige process through these operational excellence techniques. And we've gotten better because we've worked and shared our weaknesses and some of our strengths with other agencies. They've done the same. And so we've learned a lot from them. They've learned from us. And we've gotten better as a community as a result of it. And that's what I deem uh, as operational excellence. Whenever I'm uh, talking to a city manager or a chief administrative officer or someone that's really on the front lines with respect to elected officials, I'm always very interested when, in certain cases, maybe the initiatives or the priorities or the pet projects of your elected officials don't exactly align with what you and, and city staff, team members, in your words, know what may be in the best interest of El Paso in the, the long term. So how do you go about managing, operating, appeasing that political aspect of your role, while at the same time ensuring that big picture strategy is still driven by the technical experts that work in all of the city departments? I've been very blessed and fortunate to have worked with some really smart people in strategic planning. And even before that, in growing up, I learned that and didn't know I was learning it. And that my mom and dad had a vision for us. They wanted all of, all of us to finish college and they wanted all of us to, to work hard to make that happen. They showed that to us by working three jobs a day and being able to show us a strong work ethic. We all then finished school while my cousins and stuff, some of them ended up in prison. Some of them obviously didn't finish school. And, and we did. And we did that because my mom and dad had a strong vision and executed that. So I think it's important that when you look at uh, how that translates into the work product in an organization like this and how you work with elected officials is that I don't see us having something dissimilar to what they want to accomplish. We work together no different than how we did it whenever I was a kid. We have a strategic plan. That strategic plan is grounded in resident, resident surveys. It's grounded in what the council says they want, and it's grounded in all the stakeholder input that we, re- we receive. So we, we got all that information from the residents that, and, and the stakeholder, and then we present that to council. That's very compelling data. So we compel them to see all that data that is more scientific in nature, not just anecdotal. A lot, of, a lot of times when you hear from one individual like me or others, council, whomever, it's anecdotal things based on what we think we know, based on our experiences. But when you get these surveys, you hear from the entire community. When you get these surveys from all the agencies in town that deal with all these different groups, whatever groups they are, and you you get 20, 25 groups and get all that input and aggregate it and share it with the council, it's very compelling. So I don't want to say that we talk them into what we want to do. We talk them into what our community wants. And, And I don't think there's a lot of talking into that takes place. We just share that data with them. And then they see that some of the anecdotal things that they've heard are true, but that some of the other feedback that is received across the community is more comprehensive. And so then we use all of that to put our strategic plan together. We agree on the strategic plan. That's where all of that back and forth happens. That's where the magic happens, so to speak. Finish that up, and then we stick to the plan. And we're very disciplined about sticking to the plan. We come back and we make updates to the council twice a year. We used to do it every quarter. It was too much data, quite frankly, that they weren't accustomed to. So we do it twice a year, and then we change that to doing it once a year, right before the budgeting process. We're doing that right now. And we're even going through an evolution and even making that reporting even better by making it more succinct, because we're constantly looking at how can we get better. And we, we got feedback from them that you know we had like a very long presentation on it, because I told them it's a lot of results, but we need to get better at getting that information out quicker and, and making it more interesting. But yes, we present that right before, 
And then we get into the budgeting process right after that. And then we put the budget together based on the results that we have based on some of the things that weren't done and then work that back in. So in 20 years, and whether you're still with the city or on a beach in the Bahamas, let's suppose El Paso follows the vision of what you wish to see. How do you think life would be similar or maybe different for the average resident going about their day? Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> so well, there has already been quite a transformation that our community has gone through. And it's been because we have a strong vision statement that is a collective vision statement that has been put together by aggregating all the input that we've received from our community. And our, our vision for our community is that we want safe and beautiful neighborhoods. Now, on the safe part, we're one of the safest cities for our size in the United States, and we're right on the border. And we want beautiful neighborhoods. We have the first master plan neighborhood development that El Paso's ever had, period, that we just did two years ago. And, it, and it's in the process of being, being constructed. We have better streets. We have more landscaping. We have better lighting on our streets. So all those streets that get traveled the most, then lots of improvements. So part of our vision is we want safe and beautiful neighborhoods, and we're busy getting that done. We want a vibrant regional economy as part of our vision. We've created thousands of jobs over the last seven, eight years, and we've retained even more thousands uh, in, in our community. The important part about that, we've increased our wages by almost 20%, which was a huge priority for our community. We say we want safe and beautiful neighborhoods. El Paso want, will, will have safe and beautiful neighborhoods and a vibrant regional economy. We're busy doing that. I said earlier, the things that have been done in downtown, that's also part of the development. So we can say today that El Paso is safer. El Paso has more beautiful neighborhoods, that we're more vibrant uh, you know, in terms of our economy. So El Paso will have safe and beautiful neighborhoods, a, a vibrant regional economy, and exceptional recreational, cultural, and educational opportunity. We talk about our vision statement, and to your point about how do we want our community to look like 20 years from now. And I say that we want safe and beautiful neighborhoods, a vibrant regional economy, and exceptional recreational, cultural, and educational opportunities. Right now, we're very busy doing that. And we have already seen transformation occur. We want more of that to happen. And we want to do it with a strong organization. That's the last part of the vision statement. And so when we win these awards, they're not for the award. It's to show that we're operationally proficient and, and take the, the critiques that we're going to get. And that's okay. But show them, but look at the results. We're listening to you. We heard you. We've done these resident surveys for, for a reason. That's the reason our vision statement is written the way it is, because it's all grounded in your feedback. And then we can point to that. And every time I go and present this in any format to businesses, to residents, they're floored by the work that's been done. And I'm telling you, that the reason why the work got done the way it did because of our team, because we invested in our team on that individual employee, trained them better, gave them programs to take care of themselves better, so that they're more proficient in what they do, because they're going to be happier if they're healthier. They're going to be happier if they're being trained and being inspired and motivated. I want them to be happy at home and here. Why? Because if they're happy at home, they're going to be happy here. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get a better product. And, and we have the proof to show for it. Um, so it, it's, it's an incredible journey we've been on, and, and it's been very fulfilling to see the development of our people and see how they have changed this organization and how, quite frankly, they've changed our community. I think that's a fantastic place uh, to leave things. And, and Tommy, really appreciative of your time this morning. I think we got some real insight into what's behind running one of the most successful local governments in the US. And the biggest takeaway for me is 
how much we traditionally maybe under index on investing in people as the main catalyst for transformation. So really hope our listeners keep an eye on El Paso's progress moving forward and, and best wishes to you for continuing the amazing work your team has achieved so far. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the work that you're doing and shedding light on these very important issues. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.